0: To Systematically Your Weekly Theology Podcast. I'm John Heaps. I'm talking to you from Austin, Texas. But we have with us, as usual, Ryan Hemmer, Robin Boré, and Brian Baychek. And this is our first official episode. You may have heard our preview episode last week where Brian unfortunately couldn't join us and we talked about forgiveness. This week we're going to talk about church and community. But before we do that, I want to say a little bit about our format. So usually it'll just be the four of us getting, to get, getting together to chat each week, to talk about theology, some topic we find interesting, the philosophical and uh, otherwise nuts and bolts of the idea. Occasionally, we'll have guests. And when we have those guests, you may or may not know who they are. And so one of the things we want to do is have some sort of slightly silly, off-topic questions questions to help get them relaxed, help get us relaxed, but also so you can get to know us all a little bit. So over the next couple of weeks, we're going to preview some of these questions by having one of us ask the rest of us their contribution to the question thing. So this week we have Robin
1: with her question. Robin? I just want to know from
2: all of you, what is the worst style choice you've ever made?
1: Brian, you look confident. Sure. Yeah. I, yeah. I know the answer
3: very immediately. Uh, I would have been 13, I think, uh, which is the age where regrettable fashion choices are probably the norm. Uh, this, this was at the beginning of my, uh, flirtation with, uh, the desire to be a rock star in, uh, various types of pop punk. And then, uh, screamo and metalcore and all those fun genre uh bands and i bleached my entire head and lifted the color so light that it was i honestly it was similar to the shade of the paper that's on my notepad in front of me it uh it went basically white and then uh i i for whatever reason liked it so much that i went like it had to have been like 10 weeks without a haircut. So there are photos of me with uh, some very interesting, they're not intentional frosted tips. So that's, yeah, that's definitely my choice. Yeah, they're quite something.
0: Uh, When I was 14 years old, freshman in high school, I decided that while many an angsty teenager might develop an all black uniform, this was too cliche for me. And so I went exclusively highlighter colors, highlighter yellow, highlighter green, and the best item of all were a pair of, I guess you would call them like kind of baggy orange raver pants that zipped off at the knee. Uh, Those were rough.
1: I
3: I don't think anybody's going to be able to
0: top that. (laughs) Yeah, it's pretty pretty bad. I did, however, uh, when I was a very young man have, we mentioned uh, off air, I, had a, I did have a rat tail and, the, and that a rat tail is not my greatest fashion faux pas really tells you something. There's a, there's a really fast though, I have a story about rat tails because uh, when, when my wife and I were dating before we got engaged, I was living in California and a friend of a friend was a very highfalutin hairstylist in the Bay Area. And I would get a little deal to get Haircuts from this guy who, you know, is the kind of guy who would go spend 10 days in Paris to work with the Vidal Sassoon Institute and all this kind of stuff. And I just told him, because I didn't have a real job, you do whatever you want. And usually this resulted in very nice, uh, if, you know, slightly avant garde haircuts. But one time it involved uh, a kind of uh, asymmetrical faux hawk that culminated in a rat tail. And remind you, this is in 2010, I guess. Uh, and I was game because uh, what do I care? Uh, I then, however, wore this haircut to Christmas with Annie's family, for which Annie was a guest. And she had her sister, Christina, intervene. And so in the living room, my first night in Texas, they cut my rat tail off because this aggression would
1: not stand, man. Anyway, that was long winded, but that story's funny. <laughs> I went from. Probably from
4: 1992 to 1995 when granted I probably weighed 65 pounds exclusively wearing size large t-shirts and not not because other sizes were unavailable there wasn't like a national shortage or anything like that I had just decided for whatever reason that that was the size that that was right for my body. You, you were a I was wrong. I was wrong, but uh, you know, that was what I thought at the time. And so if I go back and look at, you know, photographs from my childhood, most of them, you know, from, from the early elementary school days, uh, have, have me wearing a t-shirt, uh, the sleeves of which go down halfway to my wrist, uh, and the, the bottom hem of which goes down past my knees.
2: What you're really saying is your worst fashion choice was for about a decade you wore dresses. Well, a decade
4: <laughs> is pushing it. But, you know, well, there, this, this was, you know, crisscross was a big thing back then. And so, you know, I wasn't wearing my jeans backward or anything. So I, I toned it down a little bit. But there was, there was a few years there where, uh, you know, some of the pictures are difficult to look at. Robin.
2: Well, I have my parents to thank for their complete uninterest in buying us fashionable clothes, which saved me, or, or being fashionable, which saved me from the bull cut, the rat tail, whatever. However, we, they would accept hand-me-downs. And I had a, uh, you know, as kind of a four, five, six-year-old, lovely sets of um, pastel corduroy flower patterned outfits where you had shorts with a matching corduroy vest. And then the kind of underlying floral pattern of those would be brought out in a t-shirt that you would wear with it. And it kind of like, it was just like, I was like five going on 45 with like a bunch of cats. It's basically the real life equivalent of the SNL mom jeans sketch Um, for, you know, she's not a woman anymore. She's a five-year-old who you should call Linda. Um <laughs> That was definitely, I think, a low for me. I'm not sure my mom would agree. She might say the low was uh, for a number of years. When I was a teenager, when I was about 90 pounds, I wore medium-sized hoodies, one particular hoodie, every day, everywhere, um, for about three or four years, until my mom banned it from leaving the house.
3: I love how two of these stories involve like familial interventions. Yeah, nice. <laughs> yeah, um, but John was almost 30 when his happened. That's
1: true. <laughs> true, true. Uh,
0: yeah. Mm, I'm going to dwell with that later. Anyway, all right. So uh, to change tones rather drastically, you know, last week we took our topic from the, the, the difficult situation that people who work in uh, Catholic and Catholic adjacent theology are in right now, um, in the news cycle and on Twitter and Facebook and other various venues, all it seems people can talk about is the, uh, sex abuse scandal and fair enough, of course. Uh, and last week we sort of used that, uh, to do what we found we could contribute to the discussion, which is, uh, secondary or even sort of tertiary conceptual things, which, which, you know, I hope people found last week clarified some of uh, the surrounding issues around forgiveness and pardon and that kind of thing. We want to do something similar again. We were pretty happy with how that preview discussion went. And one of the things that keeps coming up, I've noticed anyway, in the discussions, especially on Twitter, is a certain kind of, let's say, equivocation or maybe just fuzziness about when we use this noun, the church, what we're talking about. Are we talking about the hierarchical structures itself, the institution? Are we talking about, uh, as Francis said in his letter from a couple weeks ago, the entire holy people of God? Are we talking about some kind of uh, eschatological ideal that we participate in? It's not always clear, and sometimes the discussion derails when People are either talking past each other or glancing off one another in terms of how they talk about it. Uh, And a a couple of weeks ago, as we were talking about philosophy, or excuse me, about theology topics for the podcast, Brian, you mentioned that you had gotten a question in light of the crisis and scandal about church and how to think about the church. And and you had a response that I I really liked, and I'd like to sort of take that as a a place to start. Can you share that with us?
3: Uh, Sure the the actual response itself was very long i it was in an email form i've had a number of different students ask me various versions of the same question which is uh how did these things that have come to light recently in pennsylvania with cardinal mccarrick uh, a number of other places and have for the past uh, decade and a half been sort of rocking the church with much more uh, frequency and regularity than we'd like. How, to, how, do, how do we account for that in light of what we say about the church, where we the biblical images and the traditional theological images that we use when we talk about ecclesiology are pretty triumphant. We, we tend to talk about the church as holy. We talk about the church uh, in ways that don't necessarily line up with uh, the abuse of anyone and let alone the cover-up of that abuse. And uh, as John mentioned a minute ago, the the one thing that I wanted to highlight in, in my reply, both to the initial very uh, earnest question, uh, in a good way, but very honest, earnest question that I received, uh, and in all my other replies, uh, what I wanted to highlight was that Almost uniformly, when news articles, whether defending the institutional Catholic Church's actions or uh, critiquing the lack of response to certain uh, problematics within the curia, almost uniformly, the term the church is used as synonymous with the hierarchy. And that isn't actually reflective of what I would consider to be the best ecclesiologies. And uh, the, the way that I tend to frame the church follows very much from a, one particular ecclesiologist, his name is Joseph Komanchek, and his uh, 2008 Per Marquette lecture. And that lecture is entitled, Who Are the Church? Which is a, an intentional play on a title from, I believe, it's an article that Hans Urs von Balthasar had written called "Who Is the Church?" And in that text, what Kamanchek does is he he points out that there is a tendency to speak about the church in the third person singular, uh, maybe the second person singular, where the church is a they, the church is a she, the church is an it, the church is a you. But almost no one uses the language of us to talk about the church or we. And Kamanchuk draws the conclusion from this that there is a tendency to speak about the church as if the church were suprapersonal. So as if there were some thing floating out in space somewhere that constituted the church. And to that, he says, no, the, the church is an event of intersubjectivity. It's a shared meaning. And uh, Robert Doran, uh, John Dadosky, that I myself, actually, in a couple of different places, there have been a few people who have argued that this meaning needs to be the, the meaning that's perfectly incarnate in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And my response to my student was, the church is the we that participates in that meaning, the church that's bound by that meaning, both uh, pre-thematically and uh, intentionally. And where that meaning is not being mediated through and incarnated in the actions of people who purport to be the church, uh,
1: then that th- those people who are not incarnating that meaning are essentially
3: missing the they they've lost the plot so to speak uh the the goal needs to be incarnating the we that is intersubjective with the meaning that christ mediates to us perfectly and maybe bracketing any uh, as you guys did so very well last week uh the particularities of practical responses the, the key thing that we need to focus on is how do we be that we more effectively as a church and how do we align our actions with the meaning that we purport to mediate? So I'll, maybe, does, does that answer your question satisfactorily? It's, it's a no, long, that's, rambling response.
0: No, not rambling at all. I think it's actually, it's very clear. I, I want to flag a question about the practical response that we're sure. not going to get to, but I just want to flag it. Um, because one of the difficulties at the intersection of what we talked about last week and what we're talking about this week is precisely this question of, um, how do, how does a community that has a kind of we quality, right? That you can address with a plural personal pronoun, we, us, ours, um, how do you sift out response and responsibility and fault and things like that? Um, and that's one of the things that's very difficult about, for example, I mentioned earlier, Francis's letter in response to the scandal and crisis, is that sometimes as you read it, you want to ask yourself, okay, he just used we, ours, us, and I'm not exactly sure, concretely, who that refers to. And that becomes a real problem when you're trying to hash out uh, practical responses. But I'm just flagging that question. Um, if you if you're interested in that, by the time you hear this podcast, uh, I've written a, a, a medium-length essay about Francis's letter that you can find in the Church Life Journal, um, and I don't know what its title is yet. Otherwise, I tell you, but we'll put it in the show notes, maybe. Um,
2: I just I have a question, a more theoretical one that I want yeah, to raise here, um, Brian. If you, I want to ask you a little bit to expand on how Kumanchuk or how you would avoid essentially what seems like here, almost like a phenomenological, like a phenomenon-noumenon distinction, because you have this, this ideal, which is this meaning incarnate in Christ. And then you have all of these, like you talked about people who incarnate that meaning better or worse. Like how do you, uh, how do you avoid having that kind of strict divide between you You have noumenal or or ideal um, that is the church that is this, perfectly incarnated in Christ's life and then the kind of phenomenological experience and people who who live up to that or don't live up to that or um does that that make sense Uh, how you avoid kind of ending up in that in that with that distinction or is that distinction a problem
3: I think I think there are probably two distinctions at play there that I want to uh flag uh, that's uh, to follow through on John's nomenclature earlier, which I also use a lot. Uh, I, I would want to flag, first of all, that uh, So, when using the, the idea of sort of a noumenal, phenomenal distinction relative to this, uh, that's actually one of the things Kamanchek is trying to avoid very hard uh, as a student of Lonergan. And the example that I always give uh, relative to something like that to sort of avoid that kind of understanding is uh, Canada. So, Robin, Robin, you are currently in Canada physically, geographically. Uh, the, the Canada to which I'm referring, though, I can't point. Um, the, or I, I cannot point to the Canada to which I'm referring. I, I can identify it on a map. I can talk about its geographical boundaries, but uh, Canada isn't some... Thing sort of floating in space already out there now real to be uh uh grabbed so to speak uh the the economy of canada is even less uh, tangibly physically a, uh, an identifi- identifiable out there thing and when when i use the word canada there is still a referent to which I'm referring and a uh, meaning that we can all recognize to greater or lesser degrees. I think Robin, you probably have the, the most, uh, accurate understanding of what Canada means. Cause we were joking before the recording that we're all supremely ignorant of Canadian geography. Whereas you can, uh, you can, you can, you are Canada. <laughs> um, but, uh, or at least the, the, uh, concrete it, universal yeah exactly um the so i i the the only reason I, I bring that up is just because i can't grab canada uh i would give it a hug because canada is nice but uh I, just because i can't do that does not mean that canada is not real uh and the The idea of sort of an in here, out there, uh, real, not real, numinal phenomenal split relative to the idea of the church, Kamanchuk wants to avoid uh, in the same way as uh, I think you and all of us would want to avoid saying, well, I can't point to Canada, so it must not be a thing. I think the other issue uh, is, or it must not be real, uh, the other issue is... Uh, more of a moral sort of aspirational yardstick, if that makes sense. Because uh, there's, I see so you use the word ideal. I think in that context, as uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, uh, as referring to that to which we ought to live up.
2: Um, oh no, I meant more like like Plato's ideal. Okay, like, so
3: actually, in the like
2: the actually, yes,
1: uh, in the sense of uh, conceptual. Uh, yes. Uh, yeah. The
3: I suppose I, what I should ask is: Did the f- the first part of the answer address that in any way? Did that
2: make sense? Yeah, I think that makes total sense. And I mean, that's for everyone who reads Bob Doran. I mean, that's really the argument he's making in a couple chapters of Tdh about how things are meaning is real, even though it's not out there. I, when it comes to ecclesiology, though, it strikes me like you were using the example of Canada. You say that. People would say, like, well, just because you can't point to it, it's not real. In ecclesiology, I think you get almost an opposite thing, where people say, well, there is this real ch- church that's like the body of Christ, which is this perfect, holy, wonderful thing. Um, but then it's on, and then and then there's like the church as it appears on earth, which is kind of like, well, does it live up to that? Like, instead of instead of saying. Um, like it strikes me in ecclesiology, the, the problem is people don't say, "Well, you can't point to the church, so it's not real." They say they actually point to the real, holy, totally perfect thing, and then there's no ability to bring what actually happens on earth into the discussion, and, and so you get this very triumphant thing.
3: Yeah, that, that okay. That that makes a little more sense. I
0: apologize. So let, let's push down a, a level conceptually then. Yeah. Because it seems in your example, Brian, and Robin in your response, that there's a more fundamental question. So we can deal with the sort of um particular problems of church as having a kind of eschatological moment or term or expectation or ideal, whatever word you want to use. But this doesn't seem to be a problem unique to the church that you have
1: the same problem in just about any human community, the United States as a community is having uh,
0: paroxysms over identity. What does it mean to be American? Um, and so I guess the the question that I would want to ask
1: and push against is uh, Brian. You use this term inner subjective meaning, and so. Intersubjective meaning is interesting, right? Because at least in the ways that
0: we're used to talking about intersubjectivity, whether you want to do it with Levinas or if you want to do it with Lonergan or what have you, intersubjective meaning is, in the first instance, preconceptual. It's something that that happens in the encounter between conscious subjects, right? Um, But we could also have very explicit.
1: Reflective conceptual notions that are um, not just this kind of uh, right, this
0: kind of uh, vibrating on the same frequency between subjects. You can and then on and then beyond that, if you have an explicit articulation of even definition of what our community is, whether that's America, whether that's the church, whether that's Canada, whether that's. Uh, the four of us as a sort of group of podcasters or what have you, then you can have not just an intersubjective meaning, but to the extent that people devote themselves to that identity, to that community,
1: you can have a kind of, what we might distinguish as interpersonal meaning. Um, And so you've got this kind of uh, escalating way of community being
0: meaningful, being instantiated, uh, of being concretized, of being made explicit. Um, But it's also, so we can do that kind of definitional work, but it's also on the move, right? Communities undergo history. Their circumstances change. They're just through the change of generations. Their constitution changes. Um, Ryan, I kind of want to throw to you, because you mentioned that you're reading, Robin, you mentioned it earlier, uh, Bob Doran's TDH. Um, What is tdh what to what do those letters refer uh, and you were saying that there's some things in there that might be helpful to ha- hashing some of this stuff out
4: yeah sure so uh tdh is a uh, sort of Lonerganian shorthand for uh, robert doran's massive 1990 work uh, theology and the dialectics of history um it's a book that that uh, father doran spent the better part of a decade writing, uh, which tries to, in its in its broadest terms, um, work out the the um, most basic or most general terms, categories, concepts, ideas that are going to be relevant for doing systematic theology in the age that we all live in. So uh, something analogous to what uh, the recovery of aristotle um uh, enabled in the 13th century but what what father doran recognizes is that um those general categories today um have as their
1: their sort of primary referent not just um metaphysics but also history um
4: and a recognition that um The reality that we're we're talking about when we talk about the real world um, is not a reality that's just uh, ready-made at hand, that we simply discover and and, um, conceptualize and explain, but a world, a reality that uh, our own acts of understanding and our own judgments and our own decisions create, make. Um, Canada is a thing that people made. to use Lonergan's favorite example, a law court uh, absent the idea of, a, of law is just a room. Um, and so most of what the human world is, uh, is, is are, are sets of meanings that humans themselves in their uh, intersubjective and interpersonal and cultural interactions and dynamics make. Um, and if but if humans make them humans are bound by place and bound by time and so everything they make is conditioned by the dynamics of history uh by history we mean not just um, the tick-tock of a clock uh, but the development or decline of meaning um the the ways in which uh generations uh, the ways in which communities um either authentically contribute to the development of the meanings that they make and are made by or in their irresponsibility and inauthenticity and and in fact sinfulness they allow those meanings to fall into decay um and in fact perhaps create new shadow meanings that are are uh, Actively deleterious to shared common life.
0: You might think of those as, as ideology in a sort of way. Exactly. Yeah, yeah.
1: View.
4: So, what what Doran's trying to do then is to um, largely drawing from Lonergan's insight and a little bit from method and theology, he's trying to um, put his, his thumb on uh, the pulse of what are going to be the theoretical instruments. The, the to use the Lonergan term, what are going to be the basic heuristics, um, the basic theories that are going to allow us to do that kind of extremely broad analysis um, and get anything like usable results. And so uh, he, he takes from Lonergan the idea that, um, that value or the human good has uh, distinctions within it, that there are different kinds of values that concretely exist within human communities, within human lives, within the human world, and uh, they're ordered to one another. Um, They have this self-assembling quality, and we appeal to them uh, by our preferences. Uh, We appeal to them with with our feelings. Um, and when we do that, we appeal to this structure, this scale. And so he he takes from Lonergan that the scale consists in um, vital values or sort of the the basic goods that you need to sustain your your existence, your life as an incarnate being. You know, food, health, shelter, etc. But beyond that, uh, human beings have this have this ability to organize the distribution of those vital goods. Um, so it, they they don't just rely on um, having a tasty dinner, but they create um, networks by which that tasty dinner might appear night after night. And so, economy and technology and politics are are instruments of social order that we create in order to practically distribute those vital goods.
0: On that point, um no, that can be a little bit abstract to get your head around. So this is I've belabored this uh anecdote before with you guys, but maybe our listeners will will find it helpful. The closest thing to a religious vision I've ever had, I had in the soda aisle of a Safeway grocery store in Alamo, California. And it was uh, middle of the day, so it was relatively empty. Is that weird uncanny fluorescent grocery store light, Muzak undoubtedly playing, and the the aisle had evidently been just freshly stocked because there wasn't a box or a six pack or a two liter out of place. It was 30 yards or whatever it was of perfect symmetrical soda shelving. And I had a flight of imagination in which I visualized the networks of sourcing and assembly and production by which this whole aisle of soda. Came to be aluminum mining, trucking, sugarcane fields, designers making labels, right? All of these things that have to come together, stock boys putting the things on the shelves. Like if you ever look at popular mechanics, those exploded diagrams, right? We have some machine and all the parts are just slightly apart from one another and labeled. That was the sort of vision I had of the soda aisle. So that the particular good of being able to crack open a cold Coca Cola on a hot day. Is made possible, its availability is made by this huge network of interconnected um, acts and resources and jobs and roles that bring those good things like a cold Coca-Cola on a hot day to you regularly. And that is the good of order, which is a social value.
4: Yeah, it's it's uh it's it's sort of Jane Jacobs' observation about the city that a city is always basically three days away from starving to death, <laughs> uh, and and absent the the social infrastructure that that makes particular goods recur, um, there's there are, there's only enough resources in the city at any given point to sustain itself for a couple of days, so that's that's the good of order. That's the, those are social values, but human beings. Um, Aren't just social animals; they're also cultural animals. They create meanings and values, not just for the recurrence of goods, um, but to give meaning to the direction of their lives. And so, um, in it, beyond the social structure, there's also uh, a cultural superstructure. There, there are the the values and the meanings that that
1: organize. Um, how potatoes of human beings share life in common. But those meanings themselves
4: uh, only, only um, are authentic in as much as the people who live in them are authentic. And so there are personal values that go even beyond culture and ultimately religious values that sort of stand atop and organize the whole thing, that religious values here having to do with um, what, what what Lonergan simply calls the gift of God's love. Now, that that's sort of how Lonergan conceives of this in in method and theology. But but what what, what Bob Doran is trying to argue is that this basic scale is is normative, but within the the levels of the scale, um, these values are structured dialectically. They have uh, two poles that are. Linked but opposed principles of change that are kind of pulling the, the, the particular value in one direction or another. And so, what he's trying to do in this book, Theology and the Dialectics of History, is spell out what those dialectics are. And for our purposes, I think um, it's, it's helpful to kind of dig down into the, the distinctions that he's making with what he calls the borrowing from Lonergan the dialectic of community. And the dialectic of culture. Now, in the dialectic of community, the two principles of change are this kind of practical, social, political intelligence. The the, the intelligence by which roads get built, um, by which politicians create legislation, um, by which uh, a, a theory of jurisprudence is borne out in legal practice. All of these, these practicalities that sort of um, order the good of order. Uh, that's one pole. That's 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 on one side, and on the other, there's this this prior level, this this prior interaction that people have. That uh, to to use a word you used earlier is preconceptual. It's prethematic, uh, and this is this is the the pole of spontaneous intersubjectivity. Um, the the almost psychic connection, the pre-intellectual connection that we share with other people. Uh the connection that uh, allows us to um without thinking and without thematizing and without deliberating, um, reach out to help someone falling in front of us. And these these two dynamics, these two poles are in tension with one another. Um, and so what 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 we're trying to promote. Is an integral balance, uh, a genuineness between these two poles, these two principles of change. That if we get pulled as a society in one direction or another, bad things happen and the good of order starts to break down. If we get uh, too attached to intersubjectivity or if we get too attached to uh, practical intelligence, things start to disintegrate in our hands. And at one level, This is always the case with particular societies, right? This is the Greeks and the Romans. This is America. This is Canada. This is sub-Saharan Africa. Any place you find human beings sharing uh, a common life and trying to organize that life practically, um, you find goods of order. But there's something unique about this moment in human history because there's global scale to these goods of order. There's international economies. Uh, where if things go wrong in one place, there's a, there's a ripple effect that will um, interrupt the goods of order in places thousands and thousands of miles away. And so in a global context, with a global good of order, um, maintaining the, the integral balance of this dialectic is exceedingly difficult and the stakes are exceedingly high. Um, because if, if the, the, the dialectic falls out of balance, um, you don't just have the, the suffering of one particular group of people, but the suffering of all people. Um, and so when Father Dorn was writing this book uh, in the 80s, he, he was picturing especially these, these global ideological structures of Soviet communism and sort of Western capitalism. As these two approaches, these global approaches to the goods of order that were um, interrupting, disrupting the integral balance of the dialectic of community. And so, what he's calling for, the role of theology in all of this, and in particular in his account, the role of the church, is to generate cultural values, cultural meanings that are themselves going to be global in scale. Because if the problem in the social order is global, the cultural values that would intervene upon them, that would bring order and balance back to the dialectic of community are also going to have to be global, but they can't be totalitarian. They, uh, can't be what Lonergan might call classicist. It can't be an imposition. Of these values on people who don't share them, they have to be generated at ground level, right? So they have to be generated in the concrete where people actually live, but they have to escalate to um, to global significance. And so, Father Doran really sees um, the church, um, in as much as it, as Brian was talking about earlier, in as much as it incarnates the meaning of Christ crucified. The meaning of returning good for evil, the meaning of the suffering servant, it can be a catalyst and its role in the world is to catalyze the emergence and promotion of these as yet non-existing ecumenic or global cultural values that will um, intervene upon these these, um, threats to the dialectic of community. And so that's, that's really where he's locating uh, church and theology in all of this as having this unique role because it, its perspective is organized not just around uh, the goods of justice, but the goods of charity. Um, to to have, a, have something unique to say, something unique to show, something unique to be, um, such that uh, it has this special role in the, the grassroots emergence of global cultural values.
0: So, the, so that, but that raises a problem to return to our original question, which is in order to be a historical agent, the church has to be a concrete historical, let's use a vague word, an entity. And insofar as it's an entity that consists of a mass of people with a shared meaning, which is to say to be this historical agent, then it's going to be a community. And as a community, it's subject, to the dialectic of community, um, which part of uh, Father Doran's point there, right, is that this dialectic can get out of balance, right? The tension can go wonky, like you said. Um, to, let's make that more concrete, right? So, sort of forget about the church for a second. Uh, imagine going to the Department of Motor Vehicles, right? And you're waiting in line and things are humming along okay, but boy, the person is curt with you. They're very, they're very, uh, they're all business, right? You don't get a hello, you don't get a how's your day. Um, they just get you in and get you out. And you think, ugh, what a horribly impersonal experience that was, right? You know, you were in and out in a half hour, but dehumanizing. On the other hand, you go in, and the the guy behind the counter, the lady behind the counter is chatting. How are you? Oh, what adorable children you have! And it's taking forever, and you think boy, I'm glad she's having a good time or he's having a good time, but this is going to take me all afternoon and I only have an hour for my lunch break, right? You see in each example, the social value of being able to go and get your driver's license, your registration or whatever, is being disrupted by, on the one hand, very mundane examples, right? But a kind of overemphasizing of the practical problem of getting people in and out, which is dehumanizing because there's no, there's no affective appreciation of you as a person when you go in or on the other hand right you're getting so much affective connection that uh the task isn't getting done so you can have this kind of Im- imbalance in the in the tension so to return to the church then if the church is supposed to be this historical agent as a community but it's subject to the dialectic of community itself and thus is subject to the possibility of that uh dialectic breakdown or uh it, it you know, getting trapped in either uh, sort of tribal affectivity or a kind of
1: mechanistic uh, practicality, then what do we do, right? If, If the community, if there's breakdown in the social value of the community, who saves the church? I'll throw that one to Brian or Robin. Yeah.
2: Well,
3: yeah. I oh, sorry.
2: <laughs> before you answer Brian, I'm just going to add my question that's been rattling around cuz I think it will go well. Cuz he says, you know, because when we we talk about decline or going wrong in the church, which everyone recognize happens, you know, the church unlike the other communities, well, Probably with the exception of America, um, claims the, the guidance of the Holy Spirit and some sort of you know manifest destiny, some sort of participation in the divine that is that is somehow special, right? Like we're baptized into the body of Christ in the Eucharist. You you know you share in the body of Christ, and so like it strikes me that if you could talk about too, like when things go wrong or decline in the church, isn't that a little bit? Different, or is that different from decline in other communities? And I think that tags then too with the, who saves the church. It's also the question of like, when it goes wrong, does it go wrong, and is it always the same cause? And and how do we understand the church, which has this eschatological identity and stuff, um, going wrong?
1: Yeah, I uh, that that's that
3: is kind of in some ways the question. Um, the The answer, uh, part of the answer I think that that, uh, Bob Doran would give is that uh, it ultimately has to be uh, an agency that is both in a certain sense extrinsic to the church and intrinsic to the church that saves the church. Uh, God's grace operates on all of us, but it's up to us to cooperate with that grace um, and to... In chapter five of Theology and the Dialectics of History, he names uh, the participation in the meaning of being church as suffering servant in the world uh, as the central intelligibility uh, that sort of constitutes the church's participation in salvation history. Um, the the really interesting wrinkle that's added there is okay. Well, what if members of the church are agents of uh, disvalue what if members of the church are uh, in fact doing the opposite and are the ones who are causing suffering, uh, say in the case of sexual abuse? Um, John used a word that was really interesting a little while ago uh, tribalism uh, one of the one of the things that uh, that Father Dorn stresses in theology and the dialectics of history is that there are there are a whole lot of ways that authenticity can go awry, and become a, an authentic impulse can be warped and twisted and made inauthentic. Uh, so spontaneous intersubjectivity, which uh, which we've talked about a little bit, is a really good thing. It's a native facet of what it is to be human. It binds us together. But if taken to the extreme, uh, spontaneous intersubjectivity tends to privilege those people with whom I am closest, with whom you are closest. So. Uh, uh, to do some weird riff on like the trolley problem that's in all kinds of philosophy classes. Uh, if, uh, my mom, my dad, my brother, my sister, and my girlfriend are about to be hit by a trolley and some random person on the street is about to be hit by a trolley. My psychic inclination prior to even thinking about it is going to be to save my family member. Uh, that is not, that that's not an inauthentic or an authentic impulse in a certain sense. It's just a part of what it is to be, uh, human. Uh, and it, it is actually good that we're bound to those with whom we are closest. But there's a, there's a problematic tendency that can emerge and can turn dark very quickly uh, if that natural inclination to spontaneous affection for those with whom we're closest falls out out of productive tension with practical intelligence, with the, uh, that which helps create those structures of mediation, of vital values, social values, uh, the, the thing that sort of keeps everybody on a level playing field. And I think you can argue that we're seeing a moment of very profound tribalism, both in the political context right now, and uh, I think we are now seeing some consequences of—tribalism uh, uh, might be a strong word in a certain sense—exceptionalism in the church.
1: And uh, quite often, the affection for those with whom we are closest translates into—
3: Privileging those who look like me, or who share similar sh- social standing, cultural standing to those who look like me, and I think that one of the things that Francis's letter that John mentioned earlier, and I, I'm looking forward to reading John's response, points to is uh, clericalism as extremely problematic, and one of one of the, if not the, roots of the uh, the problem that has been.
1: Uh, uh revealed in the, the recent crises and responses to the crises of abuse uh in
3: order to write a distorted dialectic within the scale of values so in this case uh the uh, the dialectic of community there has to be a higher principle that takes root uh the we lonergan people like to talk about a, a way up and a way down and so the the movement that ryan described uh, was. Uh, the movement from vital to social, to cultural, to personal, and then ultimately to religious value. But that dialectic work or that rather that, uh, that scale also moves downwards because grace, charity, hope, faith, uh, these things work on the entirety of the human person and consequently on the entire, entirety of a human community. Uh, if there's going to be, and I do believe there is, uh, A solution to or a uh, I I suppose a proportionally authentic response to the inauthenticities that led to the crises that we're currently facing it has to be from a higher level of value and it has to come from a meaning that's rooted in the authentically religious uh, not in uh, any idolatrous or uh, sort of institutionalist or overly structure privileging model.
4: Uh, let, let me push back a little bit, Brian, just sure. for, um, yeah, yeah. uh, just to play devil's advocate a bit. Uh, and, and this actually yeah. speaks to some of my own anxieties that I've yeah. been dealing with in all of this. Um, what's driven me crazy about the responses is that they haven't in, in large measure been practical. Yeah they've been appeals to what in and of themselves may be entirely authentic cultural and personal and religious values, but they, they haven't paid, um, at least they haven't vocalized or put in writing um, the the ways in which those higher level values are going to manifest themselves in terms of the restoration of the dialectic of community. Yeah, I agree. Which, as you've, as you've just said, what, we, what we're, diagnosing here is that, um, the dialectic of community in the church is out of whack right now because it's swung way too far in the direction of inner subjectivity and the the practical goods of order, um, are breaking down. And so what is going to be called for obviously is the generation of some new structure of practicality, whether that's a, a bureaucratic arrangement, whether that's, um, a set of legal arrangements. Um, and so the question is by what values are you going to design those practical structures? So um, here in Minneapolis, um, you know, we just went through years of, of this uh, scandal as it's played out locally. Um, and um, our archbishop just issued a, a statement yesterday or the day before. Outlining the practical steps that have been taken in the last few years um, in order to address the problem as it existed locally here in the Archdiocese. And I, f- I found it as the first thing I read that actually gave me any comfort because it wasn't a set of, of vague or pious appeals to just those higher values, but it, it um, was very specific and concrete about the ways in which those values actually transform the the practical social order as it exists here in the archdiocese, um, and so I, w- I wonder if uh, I can we can throw this open to anybody. Um, what are the dynamics by which those theological and personal and and cultural values make their way out of those that higher realm and actually come down to visit <laughs> the dialectic community? Because uh, it seems to me that's that's um, that's proof of
3: concept here. I am going to throw that statement in the show notes just for the record because I haven't read it. I'd very much like to. Um, right.
1: Yeah. Yeah. John, um, continue. Sorry. Go. No. 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 Uh, it it's, that's I think exactly right, and the one of the consequences of the globalization that was
0: in a way, even still nascent when Father Darwin was writing TDH, is that it's been compounded by digital media. And digital media has made possible a spontaneous intersubjectivity at great geographic distance. And so a collapsing of that geographic distance. And so a collapsing of the concreteness of people's Uh, embodied communal situation. And so the problem, people think that they are addressing the problem in practical terms by making very broad statements about what should be done. And the object of their statements about what should be done is at the scale at which uh, the geography has been collapsed, which is just like you said, like basically global, right? What should the church do?
1: And when speaking at that level, unless you have a huge amount of personal power and
0: mediated through the institution that provides that power, a mountain of information makes it very hard to be practical. And so it seemed to me, I was noting that, that the... Diocese here in Austin released a statement very quickly after the scandal broke. And it was very good. It was very sensitive. But it did not have the kind of practical detail that the statement that you sent to me yesterday had. And in part, that has to do with differences in the history of these two cities. Minneapolis has a concrete history of the scandal being revealed. And I don't know the state of what's gone on here in Austin. I just moved here. I don't know it very well. But I know that it's different in Minneapolis than it is in here. And so It seems to me that to be practical in this way is, in fact, uh, to return to the conditions of your inner subjectivity, which is to say your embodiment and the locatedness of your body. And so we can think of that, right, as, well, those are limitations on us as human beings. um, and, And there's a kind of sense we might talk about in terms of embodiment. But it's also the condition of possibility of, for us, knowing anything at all. And so knowing what to do practically um, may in fact involve a return to inner subjectivity, uh, a return to the kind of settings and context where you can look people in the eye and sit in a room with them, at least if not not actually, at least in principle. Um, We're getting a little long here. So I, uh, unless Robin has anything she wants
1: to add, uh, because I don't want to cut you off there.
2: I think I think the only thing I'd add, maybe to bring back the a little bit more of the kind of ethical discussion to it, is that um, one of the ways the church has always had to kind of deal with that, those practical things, has been penance. Right. Now penance has, has gone through a long, interesting history and and, and much of what its purpose was has been forgotten, right? But penance comes after absolution. Uh, it's not some way of like earning forgiveness or whatever, but it is the practical method of reconciliation. Um, inside the person, right? So to deal with those those personal biases and the personal distortion of values, um, but also properly understood, right? Penance is supposed to also lead to to reconciliation and and fixing those values on on a broader scale as well. So I think um one of the things that has made me sad in a lot of this is to see calls for penance that are essentially sackcloth and ashes and, 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 and not practical solutions. And I think that there's a rich history there that, that can be drawn on and that we need to understand these um, calls, you know, understand like the penance that needs to happen, not as like, oh, woe is me, but but instead this this practical action. And in, and until those practical steps have been taken, there hasn't been penance. Um so that's I think that's the, what I'd want to say just to finish up.
0: Well I'd l- I'd love to come back and, and talk about that in a future episode. Um I'd love to I'd love to hear more about that. I don't know a lot about that personally and, and I think it would be a, a timely thing to discuss at, at sort of the level we've been discussing things. That would be really great.
3: Can I throw in one thing and it will be one or two sentences very quickly, I promise. Yeah,
0: lay it down and then we'll and then we'll yeah,
3: yeah, for sure. Uh, so John, I, I completely agree with everything you said about uh, proximity and uh, the return of the conditions of inner subjectivity. And Robin, I really think that you're right on the money about uh, penance and honest uh, contrition being necessary. Both of those things require transparency. And uh, I can't, my spontaneous inner subjectivity, uh, with anyone is it's inhibited. If that person is, uh, metaphorically speaking, wearing headphones, screaming the lyrics to a song, not wanting to interact with me, breaking eye contact constantly. Uh, similarly, if I walk into uh, the sacrament of reconciliation, if I'm in a confessional and I just lie about everything, uh, there isn't a whole lot of contrition that's being uh, sort of attested to, probably. And it would be interesting to explore how transparency would need to be a condition for the possibility of everything we just talked about. So that's all I'll say, and I'll leave it at that.
0: No, that, that's um, Christian practices of truth-telling would be an interesting topic for the future as well. Yeah. Okay, well, we've, uh, we've dug ourselves a hole we can hardly climb out of, so we're <laughs> just going to move on. Um, We're going to conclude with a segment we did last time, uh, where we talk about, we call it Treasures Old and New, where we talk about an old book and a new book. We decided, however, that doing uh, eight books a week is probably more than any of you could go find and read. So we're going to rotate and have uh, each of us offer a treasure old and new each week, uh, and maybe two books will be adequate. So uh, Robin has volunteered to go this week, and so I'm going to throw it to her to tell us about her two books.
2: All right. So uh, the first book that I have chosen is uh, a bit of a bit of an oldie, but not super old, published in 1710, um, and it is uh, Leibniz's uh, only book that he wrote, um, you know, between inventing calculus and all that, and it's called Theodicy. Um, uh, it's most famous. Known probably by the mockery it received from uh, Voltaire in his work Candide, which was then turned into an operetta, which I would advise everyone sees. Um, but it's, the it's best mocked of because all
0: possible operettas.
2: It's the best of all possible operettas, um, and 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 uh, Leibniz, of course, in this book is, is famous for his optimistic approach to the problem of evil. Um, And despite kind of some of the derision it's received, uh, it's really worth reading for a number of reasons. Uh, One of the things I found most interested about it was um, his quite sophisticated discussion of evil, um, where he differentiates three different forms of evil, moral, uh, physical, and metaphysical, which is his invention. Um, But his discussion of it is really uh, quite excellent. Um, And then the new book that I have, Chosen follows on kind of a similar theme. It's called Evil in Modern Thought by Susan Nyman. Um, the subtitle is An Alternative History of Philosophy. This is not an alternative history like you know, Kierkegaard reimagined as a happy go lucky Italian, um, but uh, rather it's a history of modern thought uh, that looks at how philosophers specifically have tackled the problem of evil. Um, as opposed to looking at their epistemology or something like that. So uh, first published in 2002, there's now a second edition out that was published uh, in 2015, I believe. Uh, So I'd recommend both of those and the titles and authors and everything will be in the show notes as well.
0: Great. Thank you so much. Well, that's been our first official episode of Systematically, your weekly theology podcast. Um, My thanks to Robin and Brian and Ryan. Uh, Looking forward to chatting with you guys again next week. Um, If you want to follow us on Twitter, you can follow us at SystematicPod. And uh, if you're listening to this, you found us on SoundCloud already. Congratulations. Our music is from the album Ghosts 2 by Nine Inch Nails. It's track 14. Uh, I want to thank Brian for doing a great deal of our... Um, editing and producing work making sure that this sounds nice and crisp and professional for all of you and uh that's about it for us thanks for listening and remember this week be intelligent